Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. Thanks for coming. I know it's sort of an odd thing to do in this day and age to go to a book reading. I had one um, in Madison not too long ago that had a really poor turnout. And I walked out of the bookstore and like the first thing I saw was this, you know, those like they're like trolleys with a keg on them and people are bicycling them down. And there were like 20, 25 year olds that were like, and I was like, well, nobody wanted to go to a novel reading tonight. (laughs) I understand. Um, so I'm just going to launch into this book from the beginning. I'm not going to give it too much of an introduction, and I'm not going to like move from section to section because I just think that's so difficult with a novel to you know explain where we're picking up and leaving off. Um, but I will tell you that it's a ghost story and a love story, and it takes place on the high plains in eastern Colorado. And I'll read to you, and forgive me, it's still sort of early in this humble tour of mine, the questions that inspired it, I don't have them memorized yet. So I'm just going to read to you some of the things that were sort of churning in my mind as I wrote this. What is joy? What if the pursuit of comfort and consolation is exactly the wrong way to live? What if there's something wrong with gathering into your life all the people and things you like while eliminating the things and people you don't like? What if traditional narratives of progress are corrupt? What does it mean to be poor in spirit or crushed in spirit, that the crushed in spirit are close to God? What if a life is an American life because it is mediated by communal fantasy and perverted belief systems? How is it that we come to enact and thereby incarnate or make actual the stories that we tell ourselves, as well as other forms of art that we witness. Is there any part of the colonization of North America and its subsequent development of the American West that isn't fundamentally destructive? How should a person live? So that's what I walked around for two years thinking about. It's a fun, lighthearted couple of years. And here's Lyons. If you've ever really loved anyone, you know there's a ghost in everything. Once you see it, you see it everywhere. It looks out at you from the stillness of a rail-backed chair, from the old 1952 Massey Harris pony tractor out front, its once shining red metal, now a rust-splotched pink, headlights broken off, no eyes. Picture high plains in late spring, green rows of winter wheat combed across the flat, wide-open ground, the derelict sugar beet factory, its thousands of red bricks fenced in by chain link clotted with Russian thistle. Farther down the two-lane highway, the moon, rising like an egg over the hollow grain elevator, rusted at its seams. To the north and west, the sparsely populated town, golden rectangles of a a few lit windows floating above the plain. They called it Lions, a name meant to stand in for disappointment with the wild invention and unreasonable hope by which it had been first imagined, then sought and spuriously claimed. 
There were never any lions. In fact, there is nothing more to the place now than a hard rind of shimmering dirt and grass. The wind scours it constantly, scrubbing the sage and sweeping out all the deserted buildings and weathered homes, clearing out those that aren't already bare, flat as hell's basement and empty as the boundless sky above it. The horizon makes as clean and slight a curve as if lathed by a master craftsman. Nothing is hidden. And yet... It's said that in naming the place after a dream from which they refused to awaken, the people of Lyons put a curse upon themselves as much as on the town itself. One that finally ripened the summer a man and his dog came walking into town along the bar ditch from God knew where, his dark clothes blowing like robes in the wind. He must have been from up north, people said. Circled around on foot over the buttes, then hit the highway and came in as if he were from the east. Didn't want anyone to know where he was from, they said, or what he was doing. They say that later that night, when Chuck Garcia, the county sheriff, asked him who this was, who he was, this man could give no answer, no name, no ID, and a shrug of the shoulders. They say he was gaunt, his face oddly shadowed, and that even though by the gray in his hair and the stoop of his shoulders they guessed him to be 50, 55 years old, he had not a line in his face, nor any light in his eyes which were black as seeds. They say that just after this man stopped at the Walkers, John Walker practically keeled over dead where he stood, and Georgiana, his beloved wife of 35 years, all but evaporated from the kitchen at the back of the house, so distant and unearthly did she seem to become. They say that Gordon, their son, left alone to pick up the pieces and carry on his father's work, was doomed. Lee Ransom, who was 17 when what seemed like the perfect summer began, had known something like this was coming. Close as she was to the Walkers, she of course knew the details of John Walker's own father suddenly dying, years ago, and could have predicted something similar would happen to John himself. There were patterns to things, especially in places like Lyons, and especially when you were talking about the Walkers. So when she saw the silent ambulance lights from her bedroom that night, she knew whom they'd come for. She knew what was beginning to unfold. She could picture it all, the faded periwinkles on Georgiana's cotton nightgown as John woke beside her in a nauseated sweat, the runny moonlight in their bedroom, shadows of the framed window printed slantwise across the old hardwood floor, John Walker's hand, cold and damp, suddenly clenching the top of Georgiana's thigh beneath the sheets. His swaying, he missed a step, then another, and there danced down the narrow staircase to the front door, where he fell on the tile in his t-shirt and underwear, his blue jeans draped over her arm. And if anybody had asked her that night, Lee could have described everything that would happen to Gordon in the days ahead as a result. How in the Burnsville Clinic the next morning, the nurse would fold her hands at her wide belly, the toes of her white tennis shoes pointed outward, her hair cut in a smooth iron-gray helmet, her blue eyes dull and bloodshot. Outside the windows, a violet-green swallow piping in one of the landscape trees. Inside, computers and medical devices clicking, hushed voices drifting and gathering around the triage station, rubber-bottom safety shoes squeaking on the polished floor. Gordon would stand in the clinic hallway holding a white paper takeout bag from the diner in Lyons as the floor tilted and the door to his father's room contracted into a small rectangle as if suddenly drawn some immeasurable distance away. You'll want to say your goodbyes, the nurse would tell him and Georgiana in an even voice. I am so sorry. He's not likely to gain, regain consciousness. 
But when Gordon was alone with him later that hour, that's exactly what his father would do. Making a low hum in the back of his throat, clearing it to speak as he opened his eyes. He'd speak slowly, interrupted with long periods of silence between cycles of the ventilator. Clear fluid in the IV bag shimmering in the gray light. The electrocardiography machine beeping at regular intervals. Write this down, John Walker would say, reciting the instructions by heart as Gordon took notes on the back of a receipt in his wallet. Then John Walker would describe the task he was asking his son to perform. Afterward, he would pause, looking out the window from his bed at the silver poplar. You can say no, Gordon, but this has been my life's work, and one way or another, it will be yours. Here was a master of his craft who built a first-class weld servicing facility, who spent 10 hours of every workday in his shop, whom Lee had heard people say could outweld even the Hobart and Lincoln Electric sales engineers working the region, who was famous in eastern Colorado for his skill and precision, but who was calling his life's work this odd errand out of town to deliver canned food, blankets, candles, batteries, and firewood to somebody up north. Don't speed, he'd tell Gordon. Don't look for shortcuts. If you find you've made a wrong turn, go back to the place where you went astray and start again from there. Remember when you're up there that I ran the same errand myself for 35 years and was never the worse for it, whatever you might hear to the contrary. And Gordon would know what his father meant, what people sometimes said of John Walker, of the Walker men before him, and what they would come to say of Gordon. He'd know what his father's request would do to his life the one he thought he'd have, the one he was just on the edge of taking up in his hands that summer, the one with her. But as Gordon stood there in the hospital room looking down at his father, neither the rumors, his plans, nor the cost of ignoring them would matter. And so from that first night, and all through the summer, as Lee walked from her mother's diner to her bedroom, to the empty sugar beet factory, to the walker's house and back again, the sun broiling her neck and the top of her head, waiting for Gordon to reappear after an absence of a week or three nights or five. She tried to understand how these walkers, who lived so small and had seemed so good, ended up at the heart of a story like this one. Story goes, when the man and his dog came down off the edge of the highway into town, they crossed the unpaved frontage road and stepped over the fallen fence post toward a little white house, the walker's house. He stopped next to the frame of a rusted old tomato red bronco someone had dropped off for Gordon or John to clean up and repair but had never returned to claim. A hundred feet from the house was the Walker's Weld Shop, its windows open to the narrow county road where the gas and grocer had stood 61 years, and next door to that, May and Lee Ransom's little place. It was just barely twilight. The stranger stooped and scratched the dog behind the ears and spoke to her, looking out over what he could see of town. From the slight inclination of the plain, it must have appeared a shipwreck awash in grass, the old splintered homesteads half-sunk in dirt, the small crush of lights in the distance from the diner and the bar where anyone still surviving had gathered together to ride out the coming night. He circled around the walker's weld shop, a combination pole barn and quonset hut, surrounded by neat piles of scrap metal and corrugated steel. It was filled with pretty fine machinery and tools for repairing broken farm equipment and assembling hog fencing. In various forms, the shop had belonged to John Walker, his father William, 
grandfather Charles and another two Johns before them, the first opening his doors primarily as a wheelwright in the 19th century, right around the time Lyons was founded. So did Gordon's paternal grandfathers reach back in the history of the county as agricultural equipment innovators and repairmen. They had never been cowboys. They had never been hunters or trappers. They had never been traders or soldiers, and they had never been farmers, not even in the days when it seemed every man west of the 90th meridian was some combination of them all. They had long been the only metal workers in the region, as far back as living memory went, and always with expertise far beyond the meager needs of the county. John Walker, in particular, was a masterful and efficient welder, with skill in proportion to his oddness. If there was a wildfire in the foothills or the mountains, he knew it first. If it was going to rain in a day's time, he had already tacked down the tarps over the hay at Doc Sterling's place, before Doc himself could see to it. His neighbors mistook for queer perspicacity what was in fact great attention, and what his wife called serious love. The walkers were strange like that, they said, hard to figure, but good guys, reliable. Heck, John would do anything for you. They'd all raise their glasses to that. But no common sense, they agreed, and the men shook their heads. The women, heavy around the middle, slender gold crosses around their necks, and hair colored from boxes of dye they'd bought at the grocery store, they all looked away, out the window to the empty street and storefronts that made up the single block of downtown. It was as if that man had no interest in money, someone said. They were all like that, someone said, all the walkers. For example, decades before it was common practice, Gordon's great-grandfather fashioned a manner of swather out of scrap. It cut the grain and laid it on the ground in windrows, allowing it to dry before harvest. It was by this invention that Lyons finally, for a brief, uncharacteristically rainy decade, seemed to promise a little prosperity. This great-grandfather, Charles, never thought of patenting the swather, however, so never profited by it in any worldly sense. He'd bent over the metal with some design in mind to help a neighbor who was a distant cousin on his wife's side and considered a more efficient harvest payment enough. Sons and daughters of those neighboring farmers whom he helped accumulate a little wealth soon moved on to Denver, Salt Lake, Phoenix, and San Diego, where their great-grandsons and granddaughters now live in flat-faced stucco houses on smooth, curved streets that you will discover, if you are a careful student of cartography, loop into the interstates and highways in broad, swooping, endless circles. If what this new world offered was boundless opportunity for material wealth, reward for ambition and grit, then it really was a mystery why any of the walkers came to the continent in the first place. Of course, there may have been some exchange of perishable goods for the rudimentary swather, a season's worth of fresh eggs, or clay jars of alfalfa honey, or plums or cherries, which every few summers grew with an abundance the early farmers could neither predict nor control, and which were otherwise impossible to come by. Some things, carrots, potatoes, turnips, you could keep in ten-gallon buckets of cold sand in a dirt cellar straight through the winter, but fresh fruit was rare. Gordon's grandmother, if left alone for an afternoon, might be discovered beneath the warty hackberry tree, her kitchen work and laundry left undone, indolently eating a lapful of plums, one after another, sticky pink juice running down her chin and neck and wrists and forearms, flyaway dark hair standing out in a frayed and sweaty halo around her face. Look, she would say, I love these plums, and love is never idle. The Walkers was the first house the man on the highway would have seen when he dipped down onto the frontage road at the exit to town. 
Perhaps it was only because of this that he felt welcomed by the small, tidy home and crossed the weeds and clipped grass to the back door. Perhaps it was that simple. Georgiana Walker was ready for him with a mug of hot black coffee. Her long gray hair was parted in the middle and pinned up behind her ears in tin barrettes, her face scrubbed clean. All out of change, the man said, putting his hands up. Please. She extended the cup to the stranger, and when he took it, she ushered him inside and pulled out a kitchen chair. You're just in time for dinner, she said. Scrambled eggs, buttered toast, and cocoa sound good? He checked her face, and she nodded and smiled, so he sat down. Almost a warm spring night, he said. We're getting there. Couple weeks it'll be hotter than we can stand. That's a good-looking dog, John Walker said, coming out of the living room, grinning, his finger holding the place in a paperback. What's its name? The man looked across the room at him. That's my Sadie. You two come a long way together? All the way together. Will she eat eggs? We'd both eat eggs. John set the paperback open, face down on a shelf beside the pantry door. Good story, the stranger asked. John smiled. Old cowboy book my dad used to read. He picked it back up and turned the cover to show the visitor. It featured a man on horseback in a long yellow linen duster. The horse was black with a fiery red eye and rearing on its back legs. In the distance, a snake behind a sage bush and a woman in a turquoise dress pouring off her shoulders like water. Both men laughed. I don't know that one, the stranger said. John had a hundred more with covers just like it. A bearded man crouched in a mountain stream and panning for gold, an outlaw with a red bandana tied over his face and a pistol in hand creeping up from behind, a shootout in a dusty street, a magnificent cowboy on horseback draped in curtains of blue snow, long ribbons of the dark and wild mane of his dark and wild horse whipping sideways in a glacial wind. Georgiana took out the eggs, milk, and bread while John led the man upstairs to the shower and found him an old pair of coveralls carefully patched with scrap denim. Dressed in the borrowed clothes while the washing machine churned his dirty ones, Georgiana had given him no choice in the matter, the man sat back in his kitchen chair. Neither John nor Georgiana asked anything of him, not his name and not a story, nor did the man offer any. All of this the sheriff relayed weeks later at the bar, and the report made the men and women shake their heads. The walkers! God! You didn't ask him anything? The sheriff had asked. Who he was? Where he was from? The sheriff wrapped his fingers around the warm coffee mug and leaned forward in the kitchen chair. Georgiana set a thick slice of yellow pound cake before him. John Walker shrugged. He needed a shower and a meal. Chuck smiled at his old neighbor and cut into the cake with his fork. Well, at least you didn't keep him. He said he couldn't stay. Couldn't stay? Can you imagine bringing a man off the highway like that into your home with your wife and son? He could have been sick. He could have been on the run. It's a nice enough impulse, but my God, you got to be more careful than that these days. Could have been a thief, a drunk, or worse. Could have been a foreigner. He looked like a foreigner. Anything could have happened. They tisked. They looked at each other with faces of wonder. They never could understand John Walker or what seemed to be his lifetime of poor decision-making, the backward code he seemed to live and work by, his entrepreneurial failure somehow as perpetual as it was absolute. It was as if each of the Walkers in his time was choosing again and again, every morning in his work shirt with his first cup of coffee, to fail. 
They worked for free, or seemed to. They forgot or neglected to bill their neighbors. They worked so many hours a day, but scarcely profited by it at all. What other secret work did these walkers live on? People wondered. People talked. John Walker. Just look at the guy. That long, lean frame, the patched work shirt, the steel-toed boots, and that look in his eye, as if he had seen right behind your face and into the inner workings of your brain and had decided, upon seeing everything there was to see about you, to say nothing, a nod of the head. And Gordon, did you ever see a more serious 18-year-old? Works harder than three grown men put together. Abnormal. Tell you what. Yeah, but he's got Lee Ransom's attention. A knowing look, a groan. In such a small town, she seemed a great beauty, her hair long and brownish gold, and tumbling over her shoulders and down her back, the way the G and the H fell with bulky grace through the letters of her name. Gordon must be hung like a bull, someone said. Everyone laughed. That girl is vain about her hair. All women are vain about their hair. And then there was John Walker's regular disappearance out of town, presumably to tend remote customers up near Three Bells or Horses, customers who, if they really existed, were probably not paying him for his work either. Walkers used to run a farrier service out of their old trucks, someone remembered. Yeah, but no one up there has horses anymore. No one up there has anything anymore. Nothing up there but an old gas station used to belong to that Indian guy with no teeth. Gerald, someone said, yeah, but he wasn't an Indian. He'd make you an R.C. with whiskey. Sharp as a tack. Whatever happened to that guy? A shrug. Well, anyway, gone now. Nothing and no one up there. See, then? Walker's up there visiting Lamar Boggs. Got to be. Thanks. Thanks. I know that's not easy to listen to. At least for me, it's not easy to listen to a story. I like to see it on the page. Any questions or comments? Yes. Yeah, okay. So the question is, how did I decide to write about eastern Colorado when I've lived all around Colorado, including the mountains? Um, and that's because I find the plains, the high plains, really infinitely more sublime and even terrifying than the mountains. When you're in the mountains, your eye knows exactly where to land. And you can sort of, even if it's exciting, your heart can kind of settle a little bit. If you're in front of a waterfall, your eye lands on the waterfall. If you're in front of a peak, your eye goes up to the peak. And I say you, but I'm speaking for myself, of course, assuming this is maybe the case for some of the rest of you. But when you're on the plains, it's like the eye doesn't know where to settle. In every direction you look, it's the same. And you can walk for 10 miles in one direction, and it's as if you've progressed no further. And the light is so intense, and there's just wind and sand shifting. It's like you're no one standing nowhere. And I wanted to kind of inhabit that for a while. So I spent a lot of time, before I even knew I was going to write a book about it, just driving around the eastern plains. And because that's where I was, and that's where I was spending my time that's where the story came out. Yes. Did I learn to weld? Um, that's a really funny question. I know how to do it on paper masterfully. <laughs> but um, if you put a welding torch in my hand, I, well, I think I would know basically what to do, but I'd be a little bit intimidated. And in fact, partway through this process, 
um, I dedicate the book to my dad and he helped me with it. He's a welder. He got sick and died. Um, but one of those nights in between, he had too much scotch and bought a welder for me. That's <laughs> that is now my sister's and mine to share. And we're going to have to dust it off at some point and put the helmets down over our faces and figure it out because <laughs> he wanted us to do it. <laughs> Yeah. So was that in honor of your dad? Well, it, gosh, it's really uncanny. You know, I'm writing this book about how the stories we tell turn into reality. And before he even got sick, I started writing this book about a welder who was very admirable and who suddenly died. And then he got his diagnosis and got, you know, got very ill and died. And um, I, I don't think it was my doing, um, but it's very mysterious and uncanny. And he was around long enough to help me with it and to read the dedication. Yes. Okay, so the question is, as a writer, am I looking at the world differently? Am I composing sentences as I'm seeing things and deciding, you know, that I'm going to tuck this away and write about this somewhere someday? And that's a really interesting question. Um, I noticed really early on, and I don't think I'm alone in this, that I have this chatter voice that likes to narrate what's happening rather than just dropping into what's happening. There's this constant language observation. And I think it can manifest in different ways. And I unfortunately think one tragic manifestation is like people who've totally internalized a social media audience and everything that they're doing. So it's that kind of like, like I was always a step aside from inhabiting whatever was really happening. And I started writing. I went to get an MFA. I was thinking I could either do law school with an English degree or an MFA. And I was so sick of this narrative stutter all the time. I wanted, it to, I wanted that person to shut up so I could just, you know, be somewhere without taking notes, as it were. So that's why I went for the MFA. And I think sort of sideways and unintentionally through some of my life experiences, I came to learn how to quiet that voice down. Um, and I try, I try really, really hard to be attentive enough that I'm not taking notes, that I'm just witnessing. It's not easy. So when you say listening, do you mean I mean just experiencing with my five senses without any commentary. Yeah, and, and trusting that, yeah, that I'm absorbing it in some way, and it will come out later if it needs to come out, but not having that anxious, like, got to scratch this down, got to write this down. Yeah, I hate that. Good question. But Sarah, have, have people reached out to you that's not lions, or you were about about my town lions and so the question is, have people reached out me, fr to me from places like Lyons and, and said this isn't accurate or this isn't what it's like? Not yet. Not yet. Somebody reached out to me on Twitter and said uh, that they would picked up the book and they're from the Eastern Plains and are really looking forward to revisiting their childhood. And I was like, oh, no, this is a test. And he said, well, I'll get back to you and let you know if you pass. And yeah, not yet. Are you from the Eastern Plains? So you can't tell me based on the intro. Anybody here feel like I fail immediately? I'm sure there'll be some of those. 
I got some feedback with, um, with Lamb, the first book, that that's not what it's like when you're abducted. Okay, well, maybe you have a story to write. That was my abduction story. <laughs> yes? Yeah, so the question is, did I read any Kent Harriff books or other Eastern Colorado books? And I did, although I didn't read those in preparation for this. They were sort of already in the bank. Um, I did read a lot of history, and one book that really influenced me was Jonathan Rabin's Badland. It's nonfiction, um, and I read it in college in Northfield. Uh, it's a really, really remarkable book. It's written by a Brit about the romance of the American West, and I think he has just enough of the outsider perspective to really get eviscerating in his criticism and observations. I recommend it. Well, I wrote two books, one of which I threw away, and then this one, which took two years. So it kind of took four years, because I like, had to get that first one out of the way, I guess. Um, and I may resurrect some of it later and turn it into something. What's your process? Oh, what's my process? I have no process. And if I had a process, I would have no confidence in the process. I didn't do any of the things you're supposed to do as a writer. I would stop in mid-sentence to check my email. I'd get up in mid-sentence to go for a run or to go gardening. I didn't write every day. I didn't even have a desk. I sometimes sat on the floor, sometimes on the porch, sometimes on a Zafu, sometimes at a wine bar, sometimes at a coffee shop. Always on a computer, yeah. Um, really no predictable process. And Lamb was totally different. I did actually sit down and write that for six weeks every day for eight hours a day until, until there was a draft out. So I, like, I think it would be totally crazy for anybody to ask me how to write and for me to pretend to have an answer, unfortunately. You just keep stewing in it till it feels more or less finished or you can't stand it anymore, and then you switch. No, that's not true either. You're also not supposed to work on multiple things, and I worked on two books at once. Um, I was simultaneously working on a collaboration with um, a former Carleton professor who's now a professor of philosophy at NYU, Dale Jameson, and we wrote a book called Love in the Anthropocene, which imagines how... Um, how this Anthropocene, this new geological age in which everything is managed by human beings, might affect human-loving relationships, not just human-to-human, -human, but also human-to-non-human animal, um, various kinds of observations. So it's a couple of essays and five stories that imagine a bit of a futuristic world. So yeah, I was doing that at the same time, too, traveling to New York, and I moved, I sold a house, I bought a house, I got pregnant, I had twins, I was on bed rest and read nothing and did nothing but drool for a few months. I was not efficient, not, not a process I could repeat if I tried. <laughs> yep. So the question is, what am I working on now? I'm working on a bunch of things. I'm working on a novella and another novel, and I made some connections with some uh, Hollywood and L.A. people during the filming of Lamb. And I'm working on a screenplay and a couple of short pieces with some of those people, which is really fun and totally different. And it's kind of nice to be collaborating with so many people that I feel like in some way I'm off the hook, which, of course, I'm not. It's just not so deeply, intensely personal. 
um, totally different to work with multiple voices like that. So lots of stuff. And the anxiety-reducing strategy is to say, right now, I'm talking to you. <laughs> and I hadn't realized Lamb had been turned into a movie until I saw, I was reading a review that you sent me an email. Um, how, how did that come to happen? Okay, so the question is, how did Lamb come to be turned into a movie? Um, and actually, it was the, the rights to Lamb were optioned right away by Kyle Chandler, and his family, he's the guy who stars in Friday Night Lights, and he's now in, what's the name of the? Bloodlines. Bloodlines, yeah. I'm not a TV watcher, so I don't know, but I know. Yeah, he's a great actor, but he um, just got too busy and couldn't do it, and, and while he still had the rights, Ross Partridge, who is currently starring in Stranger Things, Strange Things, it's a new Netflix show that's getting all this buzz, um, he contacted me over Twitter and had this is actually a great independent bookstore story. He lives in um, Los Angeles and went to Skylight Books, which is an independent bookstore out there. And Lamb was on the staff picks and he picked it up and started flipping through it. And an hour later, he was still standing there and he was like, OK, I'm going to take this home and read it. And he'd been for years storing up all of his contacts and energy, wanting to make a movie and thought he was going to write a short film. And he read Lamb and said, I have to, this has to be it. So he handed it to his fiance, who is now his wife, and said, you have to read this. So she read it that night, and she said, you're crazy. Nobody's going to make a movie out of this. No way. And he was like, no, I'm going to do it. So I flew out to L.A. and met him and believed everything he said and said, make a sock puppet show out of if you want. You know, I trusted him. I liked him. How, what an honor to have somebody want to reinterpret something you've written. I didn't care how he did it. And he happened to do it really, really well. They made an amazing film. And not only was it like featured on the film independent film festival circuit, but actually got picked up for production and was released in theaters in January when I was in, on bed rest drooling. Yeah, I couldn't go. It was a bummer. Um, he consulted with me on the screenplay, but it was almost word for word. I mean, Lamb was so dialogue and scene based that uh, it really sticks pretty closely to the book. And I, we were there, um, my partner and I were living in Fort Collins at the time, and they filmed it in Laramie. So we went up and um, watched some of it being filmed and participated somewhat in picking some of the cast. And it was just really fun. It's, you know, actually, a lot of being on set was very boring. I don't know if, if any of you know. I see a nod out there. I had no idea how boring being on set would be. It's, you know, like every line has to get filmed looking at character A, then refilmed looking at character B, then refilmed from above, then refilmed from the side, and then the sound has to be captured from every angle. So it's just incredibly tedious. Like they probably had 20 hours of movie filmed for what they edited down to, you know, an hour and a half. But it was a lot of fun. I recommend it. It's on. It's in that red box, circulating through the red boxes now, and it's also on Amazon Prime and iTunes. Okay, thanks again for your time and attention. I really appreciate it. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.